Welcome to the Light a Candle OA meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Peter. I'm Peter, a compulsive vote reader. And maybe, I don't know who's doing the timer, but I'm trying to remember like 10 minutes for a question and answer. So, thank you, Michelle, for asking me to speak. And um, a lot to get in in a couple of minutes. Um, the people took chips. Uh, congratulations. And uh, it, it is... This is the most amazing journey you will embark upon. Even if you deviate from the path and come back, it is still an amazing journey. Everything I have today, I owe to OA. Everything. And I'll get into what that is. I'll get some numbers out of uh, the way here. Um, So, um, I'm 54. I came to my first meeting 35 years ago, and I've been coming to meetings on a weekly basis with the exception of about a five or six year period of time for that entire 35 years. So let's just say 29 of those 35 years, I've come on a weekly basis, and um, I had 14 years of abstinence, left for six years, now I have 13 years of abstinence. So there was some time beforehand coming into the program that I was not abstinent, and Why do I still come to OA? I mean, that's a lot of time to devote to something. And um, I'll get into why I still keep coming back to meetings on a weekly basis. It obviously does something for me. Um, And as I said, everything I have, I owe to OA. Uh, I come from a nice, uh, long line of compulsive readers, alcoholics, drug addicts, and insanity in the family. Um, you know, luckily, uh, I've got a lot of history about my family going back four centuries, and it's fascinating to go through and find out about them and all the craziness, the suicides, the people dying of alcoholism, um, people dying of diabetes, uh, being overweight. And um, so it's in my genetics, but that's not why I ate. Um, I like food. I was a big kid. Uh, back in the 60s, the term husky was used. I was a husky kid. You know, I look at the pictures today, I'm not heavy by today's standards. But back in the 60s, the doctor's like, you, kid, you got to lose weight. You got to lose weight. When I was a year old, I weighed about 30 pounds, which, that's a big kid. And um, I think my mother didn't know how much to feed me. So anytime I cried, she fed me. And I just... Everything was about food. I picked my friends based upon what kind of food they had over their houses. Uh, You know, summer camp. You know, the question was, what's the food like? Uh, You know, everything, I always thought about food first, everything else second. Um, And I was always battling the weight. I was a heavy kid, uh, chubby kid, not, you know, by today's standards, I would not say obese. But I guess I was heavy enough. Um, I remember... um, 
My father's been married three times. Uh, his second wife, I think they got divorced around 1981 or so. And I ran into my stepsister here in Los Angeles. I had not seen her in probably 20 years or so. And um, ran into her. I didn't even know she lived in L.A. She didn't know I lived in L.A. And so she goes back and tells her mother, you'll never guess who I ran into. I ran into Peter. Her first question is, is he fat? Which is fascinating. Uh, and she's like, no, he's not, which really shocked her because uh, my father was big. I was big. I was always on a diet. And it's fascinating that a step-parent who hadn't seen you in 20 years, that's the first question. So I definitely had uh, an orientation towards food that everybody recognized on some level. Um, and, you know, when I became a teenager, I started playing sports. So my weight got somewhat under control because I was moving all the time. And... Um, you know, I played tennis. I was a competitive tennis player. Uh, at one point, uh, I had the chance. I was offered to go pro. Uh, I was working with a guy who was working on the pro circuit with some other players and said, look, you've got it. You can do this if you want to do it. And I thought about it. And after I had that offer, I put down the racket and never played again. I was 16. And I look back on that and I go, oh, you know, fear of success, you know, I could have done it, and then I turned away. What was going on in my mind? And the nice thing about the program is when you get into the steps, um, your past changes. My history changes having doing the steps because I have a different perspective today. It wasn't about a fear of success. I see now, uh, look at my kids, I had ADD. There is no way I could focus on one thing. I mean, you've got to be a little weird to hit a ball over in that eight hours a day. And that's all you do. That I didn't want to do that. I'm, you know, here, then I'm there, then I'm there. Both my kids have ADD. I mean, they're, you know, that's the way I was growing up. So I didn't have the capacity. And even now, I'll go out and play every once in a while. And I'll start playing again for about three months. And literally, there's just a, a switch that's flipped, and I'm no longer interested. And it's a mystery. Well, it's not a mystery. I just lose interest. Something else grabs my focus. I go towards that. Luckily, uh, I have a job and a life where everything's changing every couple of minutes, so it fits perfectly with my personality. Uh, and thank God I didn't finish, you know, have a career in tennis, regardless of how I, how I do. I mean, today I can take a look and say, thank God that something or somebody had me move in a different focus and in a different direction. Because if you look at it, there's not one single person in three generations of professional tennis whose child has become a professional tennis player. And there's no other sport, not even boxing, that has that. So if it's such a terrific sport, how come no one ever has their kid go into it? It's a horrible lifestyle. That's my opinion. Um, but, you know, I can have the gratitude. I'm very opinionated. Uh, but I can take a look at that and go, thank God something or somebody saved me from that. And I can look at the path that my life has taken today and feel extremely grateful for what I have, not what could have been. And so much of my life is spent on what could have been. Every binge was about what could have been. If I'd only done this, if I'd only done that. The French have a saying. It's called l'esprit d'escalier, spirit of the stairwell. And it's like after you're leaving uh, somebody's apartment after a fight or something and you're going down the stairs and you think of all the stuff you should have said. 
that's my life. That was my life as a compulsive overeater. I should have said this. I should have done that. You know, let me go back and try, and you can't go back and try and change it. And so I was never living in the moment. I was always living in some form of regret. And the way I dealt with that regret was eat and hide and not have relationships with people. And, um, and I was kind of miserable. And I had no idea. And everyone else in my family did the same thing. So it wasn't as if I was doing something very different from other people. Um, that was just the way things were. So go off to college. And uh, that was uh, a real experience. Um, where I went to high school, uh, you know, I, I scare my kids with this every once in a while. I went to an all-boys Catholic military school. And, um, you know, I hate authority. And uh, it was, looking back on it, a wonderful formative experience. And the friends that I met there have become lifelong friends. Um, and it was great because I never rebelled at home. I only rebelled at school. And so it was actually a smart move on my parents' part. So I go away to college, big party school, co-ed, all the alcohol you can get your hands on, go into the cafeteria, eat as much as you want, as often as you want. I can go back for seconds. I can go back to thirds. I can go back for fourths. I can just have dessert. I don't even need to have a, you know. This was amazing. And so I put on a lot of weight really quick. So much so that none of my clothes fit at the end of my first semester. I remember going back uh, for winter break, and I had one pair of jeans that fit. And I was just like, oh. And I was like trying to starve myself for three or four days just to fit into something. And I remember it was Christmas Eve. I was spending with my father, and we're going out to dinner. And, you know, I think he probably saw I'd put on a fair amount of weight. And he goes, you know, I've got something you need to think about. He goes, I just started going to OA. And you know what? You're a compulsive overeater. And you need to look at this. And I'm like, not what I wanted to hear. I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. And um, so I go back to school, and I, I, I'm determined to lose this weight. I am determined to get this weight off. And so uh, I remember hanging around the guys in my dorm, and we all go out and grab something for dinner. And I'd say, okay, guys, i got to lose weight. Can I have this? No. Can I have that? Yes. Each meal, I went to dinner with them. They'd tell me what I could have and what I couldn't have. Can I get seconds? No. Then afterwards, we'd you know, go to the gym, and, uh, and I lost a ton of weight. I lost all the weight that I gained and then some. And it's kind of funny. I turned my food plan over to other people, not called other compulsive overeaters, anybody. These guys just in the dorm, first-year freshmen, and um, they did a much better job than I could have done. And I lost the weight, and... And I remember, you know, okay, the grades weren't great. It was weird being with all these people in school, and I felt very, it was socially awkward. I knew if I got down to maybe 170 pounds, things would be better. And so I got down to 170 pounds, and nothing changed. Okay. Maybe if I go down to 160 pounds, you know, my social life will get better, the grades will get better, people, you know... I feel more comfortable, so I got down to 160 pounds. Nothing changed. And I couldn't figure it out. What well, was obvious? 150 
was the number. So I go down to 150 pounds, and I'm working out and eating less and losing weight. I'm about 191 right now, just to give you an idea. Nothing changed. Obviously, that wasn't the number. I got down to about 146 pounds, and working out all the time. I was sick, but, you know, this had to be... this. I mean, if weight was my problem and now it's gone, things should be better and it's not better and I can't figure out why. And after I'd lost all that weight, I met someone, we started dating. She had just lost all of this weight, unbeknownst to me. So we're both sort of newly thin and then all of a sudden the weight starts to go back on for both of us during summer break. And uh, at that time, my father, I was working in his office for him, uh, and he's talking about our way. And I was just like, oh, God, shut up. And my girlfriend came up for the weekend, and she had put on all this weight, and she was freaked out, and this was going on. And I thought, oh, this OA thing. Not for me. You know, she can, this will help her, you know. So, you know, if you're new and you've brought a friend to a meeting, that's, a, that's great. Maybe it's for yourself. I'm not going to say so, but it's something to think about. So I took her to a meeting. It was July 4th weekend, 1983. Uh, it was a meeting in Bethesda, Maryland. It was a beginner's meeting. Uh, it was a horrible meeting. And uh, I, I just so depressing. And I'm just like, these people are losers. Uh, they have... Uh, I apologize. You know, there, I, there was a meeting list. So I thought, huh, okay. She went back down to school and... Uh, where she was taking some summer courses, and I was working up uh, in D.C. So for some reason, I don't know why, I went to another meeting on my own during the week. And uh, I go in there. It's a bunch of middle-aged uh, housewives who I'm probably older now than any of, they were, any of them back then. And, you know, they were talking about how they felt when they ate and more so when they stopped eating and the feelings didn't go away. And, you know, being 18 at the time, I didn't have the emotional vocabulary to express myself. But when I heard it, I knew it. it would, they were speaking what I was feeling. I had never had that experience in my entire life. So I knew right there, this is it. And so I didn't think about getting absent. I came back, start, kept coming, I started going to meetings, listening, because they understood what I was feeling and what I was thinking, even though I could never put words to it myself. I identified 100%. And that's how I know I was a compulsive reader. People say, get a sponsor, you know, someone who has what you want. So, you know, I'm 18. There are no men, no straight men, no men that are of, you know, at this time, 150 pounds. So there's this 23-year-old statuesque brunette who's a sponsor, and I thought, she has what I want. <laughs> so she's like, call me at 6.30 in the morning. I thought, oh, my God, at that time I was work. I had this great job working in the evenings, uh, I had gotten, and, you know, I got off at midnight, and I was like, okay, but I'll tell you, every morning got up, called her, you know, I was motivated, <laughs> not by the program, but I was motivated, and you know, she got through, okay, what are you having, she was very much by the book, and it got me going, 
So my higher power can use my instincts, even if they're extremely misguided, to push me into recovery, whether I want to go there or not. So don't underestimate uh, your higher power trying to get you into recovery, even when you're doing everything you can to avoid it. Um, I just want to see what kind of time I have here. So, uh, you know, she said, after a while, look, you, you need to find a guy to sponsor you. So, okay. Um, and, but I had begun to get the basics, went back down to school. I was in Charlottesville, Virginia. There's like five people in OA there, the same five people every week. You know. Um, and there's just no thought of really getting abstinent. And the problem was I tried to get abstinent. At the time, gray sheet was a big thing. And um, I did meet someone. There was someone who moved down to Charlottesville at a year of abstinence, and we're like, ooh. And so I was like, okay, can you sponsor me? And she said, yeah, sure, I can. I said, but you can o- I can only teach you what I do. So you got to do it my way. So Gracie, fine. She goes, well, I don't drink. I'm an AA. I thought, this is OA. Singleness of purpose. It's not AA. She goes, look, you got it. So I figured, okay, I just won't tell her. But I'm drinking. So, you know, some things were left off, you know, when I call in what I was eating. And I could, I just never, got, I get a week, I get two weeks of abstinence, I get drunk and order a pizza, and I thought, okay, well, if I do that again, then maybe I got to look at my drinking. I do it again, and I go, mm, you know, you're being a little harsh. <laughs> you know, you're a hypochondriac, you're not an alcoholic, you got a problem with food, we all know that, but you're not an alcoholic. And I'm like, they, look, they took the food away, they're not taking the alcohol away. Come on, I'm in college. Give me a break. So, I didn't get abstinent. And I kept drinking. And, and that, that's a whole other story for another program. But just suffice it to say, it got me in some trouble. And I could only get a week or two of abstinence. And it was only when I decided I had to stop drinking that I got abstinent. Amazing. And so I had to get honest with everything. Got abstinent. I was living overseas at the time. Uh, you know, I was still drinking at the... I had one day... I, I, I basically went down uh, the lawn to get my diploma. That's the only day I was sober in my college experience. So people said, what are you going to do? I could not... I mean, I was having a nervous breakdown at that point, and uh, I couldn't get any job interviews. Uh, everyone's going to law school or graduate school or to get these jobs, and I had no idea. So I said, I'm moving to Paris. Wow. Okay. You ever been? No. Do you speak French? No. It sounded good. So after talking about it for six months, I said, give me a one-way ticket, and... First, some friends were going to Spain, so I'll go, give me a ticket to Spain, and that's my graduation present, and that's what I got. And I have some very, 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 very distant cousins who live in France uh, who don't speak English. And eventually, I found my way to Paris, and I remember going, and it, it, I had just gotten sober, and I was traveling around with these people who were drinking. I don't know how I stayed sober, how I stayed somewhat abstinent. At this point, I knew I had given up sugar, and I had, you know, the semblance of some abstinence. And um, I remember showing up in Paris around Fourth of July weekend again. And I remember going to an AA meeting. And near the end of the meeting, they say, is there anyone who, you know, 
needs to share. And I raised my hand. I said, I'm Peter, alcoholic from Charlottesville, Virginia. I need to talk to someone after the meeting. And I'd never shared in meetings before, but I really knew I was going to go out. So this guy came up to me afterwards, and he goes, his name was Peter. And he was from Charlottesville, Virginia. He had moved over about nine months before and was writing a book. He became my AA sponsor. And then this woman came up to me, and she goes, are you in OA? I was like, yeah. Like, how could she know? And she goes, well, you know, there's an OA meeting starting at 15 minutes downstairs. Why don't you come downstairs? It's in English, so come on downstairs. We'd love to have you. It's like, okay. And started going to OA meetings, got abstinent, lived there for two years, and that really got me going. And came back to the United States and continued to get abstinent and more abstinent and sober. And um, the problem, though, was OA in Paris was quite small. I had a sponsor. I met someone in the meetings. She had the same sponsor. We started dating, and my sponsor said, no way I'm sponsoring both of you two. No. So I said, I'll find somebody else. I said to my girlfriend, you, you keep the sponsor. I'll find somebody else. There was nobody else. And I knew I was leaving to go back to America soon, so no big deal. So I come back to America, and I don't quite find the sponsor. You know, I'm looking around, and it's hard. You know, no one's my age. There's no one I can relate to. You know, at this point, I've been coming to OA for a couple of years, and I've yet to meet someone who was young, male, normal goal weight, straight. So if you're sitting here going, you know, I need to find someone like myself to identify with, I've been in OA for a couple of years, now in three different countries, and I had yet to meet anybody that was like me. But I still got the message. So, I never quite found another sponsor. And, you know, I moved to L.A. in 1990, uh, 91. Uh, and even then, I couldn't, I just couldn't find a sponsor. And then if you live in Los Angeles and you can't find a sponsor, you're not looking hard enough, really. I mean, there's just no excuse. Male, female, straight, gay. It doesn't matter. There are plenty of people. This is like the Mecca. And, you know, I started putting on weight. And I began to think, this isn't working. And I remember seeing this nutritionist, and I was eating some of this sugar-free stuff. And she's like, you know, this stuff turns into sugar in your body. You might, it's better just to eat this sugar. So, of course, instead of saying no sugar-free stuff, I figured, oh, I'll just have sugar. And I had gone since 1985, 1986, no sugar. And here we are five or six years, and I started having sugar again. Well, I'm off to the races. I put on 70 pounds. I don't talk to anybody. I don't have a sponsor. And I slowly stopped coming to meetings. And a lot of stuff happened. And, you know, I found myself uh, in this, you know, when I was 150 pounds, if I had an extra slice of tomato, I was going to blow it and then put on all this weight. When I was 235 pounds... I could eat another pint of ice cream, and somehow that those calories weren't going to affect me. That's the crazy mindset of the compulsive overeater. That's why I know I still have this disease, because of that crazy thinking at both extremes. It doesn't go away. You know, it's like a gas oven. The, you know, the burners can be on. Yeah, okay. Burners go off, but the pilot light of addiction is always on.
and I can't forget that even today. So I come back, 2005, uh, I remember, the guy who was sponsoring me in AA at the time um, had been in OA, I met him in OA, and then he left. And, you know, he says, yeah, I need to go back to OA, I'm recommitting to my abstinence. I figured, well, if he could do it, I could do it. And it was just uh, around Halloween, and the Halloween before, I just raided my kids' candy and felt horrible about it. He was like three, I mean, he wasn't going to eat it all, so... He wasn't going to notice. <laughs> so why not? And I decided, no, not going to do it. Went back to OA on that weekend. So around, you know, October 31st is my, is my anniversary date. And I walk into the um, log cabin and I see a guy who I'd sponsored 15 years before in Philadelphia. I had no idea he lived here. I couldn't believe it. And uh, so we started talking, saw some of the same old people, and I knew I had to be here. I knew it. And so I gave up. I said, okay, I'm going to get a sponsor, got a sponsor, had that same sponsor, stayed abstinent. And, you know, today the thing is, is that, you know, it's not about the food. Um, if I'm still focused on the food plan, I'm doing something wrong. The food plan is just the ticket to admission. As long as I follow that, then I can get on with living my life and doing the steps and working on why I compulsively overeat. What is it about how I interact with other people that causes me to either get upset because you're not going to do what I want you to do or um, you've disappointed me and I eat over that? How do I change that? How do I change my perspective and my relationship with the people around me and with food so I don't live in this constant state of turmoil? And the steps provide a wonderful, wonderful answer for that. You know, I do the inventory process. And, uh, you know, I do... Uh, you know, in doing the inventory, what the inventory allows me to do is, what are my character defects? Why am I resentful? What are my character defects? What does it affect? And what are the character defects that, if they were removed, would cause me to no longer have the resentment? And so I look at that. And then I share it with someone else, because I'm not always honest. And then I pray to have it removed. And in 6 and 7, after I prayed to have it removed, I remember going, okay, letting go of resentment. I'm still resentful. I'm like, okay, that didn't work. Okay, this time I'm going to really pray. Okay, God, I'm turning my, you know, I do the seven-step prayer. I'm now ready for you to have all of me good about Try and remove the resentment. And I'm still resentful. I'm like, this doesn't work. And then I read and I heard other people say, you've got to, after you do the sixth and seventh step on your resentments, you've got to act as if that resentment's been removed. You've got to go out there and act as if you're no longer resentful and be non-resentful. Uh, and so that was the thing that I had never heard. It took me 20 years in the program before I heard that. So there's always something there. And so I do that, and then I get into this whole perfectionism thing, and Sixth Step talks about that. You know, if the Sixth Step says, am I going to have my ideal or my higher power's ideal? get to choose, you know, and it talks about humility. And humility is working towards God's ideal of what I'm supposed to be. 
You know, I have to let go, you know, I have to let go of the image to find the vision, my higher power's vision. I have an idea of how I'm supposed to live and ooh, I should have this, I should have that, and I should live over here and I should make this mount, you know, da, 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 da. it's all ego. I got to let go of all that because my higher power has a different idea that's a lot better than anything I have. But until I'm willing to let go of it, I'm going to constantly be fighting, fighting people. And so the steps have allowed me to have a different perspective. It's also allowed me, as I've gone back, looked at the thing with tennis, to change my past. My past hasn't changed. My perspective on what has happened has changed and allows me to deal differently with people. I had an awful time with my parents. Still have a very tortured relationship. My mother, you know, she's Italian. She's like the mafia. She needs an enemy, a sworn enemy. <laughs> you know, and sometimes I'm the enemy. And she, you know, she's not happy unless there's, she's at war. You know, and, uh, and it's funny because it just sort of, you know, moves around from this person to that person. You know, wrap this up. Yeah, today she's um, taking care of her. She's on the East Coast. She, you know, she has dementia. And, you know, she kind of knows who I am some of the time. And we have a a great relationship. I am very grateful for where she is right now because I'm not fighting with her. She's very easy to deal with. For me, her slide into dementia has taken away that need to fight with everybody, to constantly be at war, so I can have a great relationship with her. And... You know, there's a lot of aspects of what's going on with her that are not fantastic. But I can be very grateful for what we do have today. And the steps allow me to have that. It gives me the freedom. I have the freedom of choice. Um, I've got ten minutes. I'm going to stop there and just see if we have any questions. And if not, I'll talk more. Uh, talk about higher power and uh, daily spiritual practice. Um, raised Catholic, fine. You know, take it or leave it. Um, um, then got and uh, became Episcopalian, got very involved with that, discovered they all needed a program, so. <laughs> um, about tw- 10, 12 years ago, my sponsor said, you need, a new pro- you, need, you need a new sponsor, you need a new higher power, you need a different vision. Because I kept saying, oh man, you know, life's screwing me over, this is happening, oh I can't believe this, you know. And he said, why is life in your higher power doing all these terrible things to you? I go, I don't know. He goes, get a new higher power. And I thought about that. And... Um, you know, one of the things that it talks about is your higher power is everything or nothing. And 2008 was a tough time financially. Went through a whole amount of fear. I pray to have it removed. Pray to have financial fear removed. Didn't go away. Pray some more. I call my sponsor. I talk to him. He's kind of sarcastic, but uh, he gets to the point. And he said, stop praying. I go, well... You're supposed to pray for, you know, the financial insecurity and all that. He goes, stop. Your higher power knows what you need. And the more you pray about it, you're just obsessing on it. Let it go. He goes, say, you know, the St. Francis prayer or something for two weeks. 
After two weeks, the fear of financial insecurity left me. I just acted as if I was going to be taken care of. And so today, what I do, my relationship with a higher power is, I don't know really what that higher power is. I don't understand what that higher power is, but I know I'm being taken care of, and that whatever happens is God's will. And I said to I had a, my, one of my very first sponsors in Paris, I'm like, how do you know God's will? Open your eyes. That's God's will. Whether you like it or not, my job is to accept it. And so that's the extent of my understanding of a higher power. I try and do five minutes of meditation every morning. Uh, sometimes at a sponsor's direction, I'll read the St. Francis prayer, the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, uh, or something else. But I do it to listen. I need to find out direction and get an intuitive sense of what I'm supposed to do. Um, I can ask for help, and that's about it. And what happens as I look back on it, everything is worked out. You know, things would happen. I call my sponsor. I have no money. I'm bankrupt. I have nothing. There's nothing, there's nothing in my account. I, how am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to do this? He goes, you'll be fine. I call him up a week later, and, uh, you know, he says, well, I said, I still don't have money. What do I do? And he goes, do you have an IRA account? I go, yeah. And he goes, take that. Well, I can't do that. He goes, you got, that's money. Um, and then something else would happen. I go, yeah, this came through. A couple bucks came through. He goes, oh, you didn't tell me about that. I guess you're being taken care of. I'm like, yeah. And I almost became reluctant to tell him that because I was being taken care of, but just not in the manner or the way I thought it should happen. It would come out of left field. But I'm here. You know, I've lived through a lot of tragedies in my life, and some of them have actually happened. Most of them are in my head. They're in my head. So, I don't take myself seriously. That's the other part of uh, higher power. So, I stay away from recreational sugar. Ketchup has sugar. I eat ketchup. I don't, been, you know, I don't worry about those types of things. But I definitely read the labels and take a look at everything. Even things that are supposedly healthy. They're chock full of sugar. So, I stay away from you know, the cakes, the pies, the cookies, all that kind of stuff. Um, beyond that, I try and have three meals a day. I mean, this morning, you know, I have a third of a cup of yogurt, a third of a cup of granola fruit, uh, coffee, and a hard-boiled egg. You know, lunch with soup and sandwich. Um, it's very basic. Uh, you know, at the time, I started out in gray sheet. Some of that worked. Some of that didn't work. Uh, a lot of people were in weigh and measuring uh, back in the 80s. I was living in Paris, and you don't weigh and measure. You go in the restaurant. Yeah, I mean, I, you go into some places. They're like, well, you're getting this. You know, it, it doesn't matter what you want. They're going to give you what they want. Because uh, you're coming to their restaurant, and very different from uh, saying, "Well, I can't have this and can't have that." And could you take that out? And they're like, "Go home, <laughs> you know, go cook for yourself, you know." And you know, it's a different philosophy. And so I learned to have a very livable food plan, and that's what I have today. What I'm struggling with today is I'm probably about eight pounds above where I should be and have been traditionally. Um, my doctor basically had me start running marathons about 15, 18 years ago uh, for heart issues. 
and I ran about 15 marathons, and I got tired of running marathons and doing so much running. I still run a couple times a week, but it brought me no joy. And so I stopped running about uh, a year ago. And, you know, when you're not running 20 and 30 mile runs, I'm going to put on a little bit of weight plus being older. Even though my food plan hasn't changed, I need to make some changes. So now what I try and do is pray before each meal and say, okay, God, help me make an abstinent decision. It's amazing. When I remember to do that, the meal is just different enough that there, 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 there's a change. And if I don't remember to do that, I'm still making an abstinent choice, but it's not the best abstinent choice. So um, I keep my food plan very basic. Traveling around, it's flexible. And oh, also, that's my food plan. My abstinence also includes exercise, having a sponsor, sponsoring, and having a home meeting. Yes, how do I work the program and the steps in my interpersonal relationship? Work, family, kids. I got, I got very upset a few weeks ago with somebody who was not doing what I felt that they should be doing, and it really upset me a lot. And I thought, oh, i got to write an inventory. And I, and I had this thought that came into my head. They are not your source of happiness. What they do or not do is not going to impact your happiness. So let it go. And that was a freeing thing for me. Um, I've had a real difficult time. I'll tell you, I have a business partner who got very ill. He was concealing his illness from everybody. And it really created some problems. And I'm like, look, what is... And part of the illness had some dementia involved with it. And I wasn't really familiar with this. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I'd go to the company and say, this guy's... And no one would pay attention to me. And, um, and he just went downhill. And it's been very contentious as I've taken over things. And all my character defects have come out about this. You know, look, if you were honest, if you did this, you know, we wouldn't be in this position. And, you know, I'd love to blame him. And the fact of the matter is, you know, if I was going through the same thing, I'm sure it's a very scary thing for him. It's difficult. I have to let it go. He has his path. And if he wants to disclose what's going on and be honest with it, great. If he doesn't, that's fine. It doesn't need to affect my day-to-day -day living. I go on with what I'm supposed to do. I'll tell it like I see it. I mean, I'll confront him and say, look, what is you know going on? I'm very honest about things. But what he chooses to do or not do is none of my business. Um, and, you know, with everybody else, it gets into, I have to focus in on myself. And I can't control anybody else. My time is up. Thank you.